touch this. You can't touch this. Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet them, greet them, treat them, and street them. Today's date is April 17th, 2022, and I'm your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Stop. It's not always hammer time. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Matthew Schmidt. He is a pediatric orthopedist, adolescent sports medicine, and young adult hip preservation surgeon at San Antonio Military Medical Center in Texas. Welcome to the SGEM, Matt. Thanks for having me, Ken. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you here, but let's get the disclaimer out of the way because I know that you serve. Yeah, the, the views and opinions of this podcast don't represent the United States government or the U.S. military. And that also includes the blog we posted. Now, people may be wondering, Ken, why have an orthopedic surgeon on an EM podcast? Well, there's several reasons, of course. We work in a team. Uh, and another reason is we see many patients with orthopedic issues in the emergency department, and they often ask us our opinion. So I thought, well, if we're covering an orthopedic paper, we should have an orthopedic expert to help us digest this recent publication and, and put it into clinical context for us. So it's great to have you on the show, Matt. Yeah, thanks, Ken. I think it's, it is important you, you highlighted the team concept and, and many of our patients uh, go to the ER first, right? All of our fracture patients, a lot of our injuries are, are first evaluated in the emergency department and then referred to us. And so uh, they commonly come in with, uh, with stories from the emergency department. So it's good to work together as a, as a team and collaborate on these types of issues. And we need to know each other's literature because we're not in silos. We're working in a system. And if each other knows what literature is out there, I think we can provide better care, better communication and ultimately better outcome for patients. But there's another reason people may not know, but Matt's real claim to fame is he's married to the president of the American College of Emergency Physicians. Yes, Dr. Jillian Schmidt. And we ended up talking about this paper when we were together at a faculty dinner recently. That's right. So I, I dabble in orthopedics, but more commonly, I'm arm candy for Jillian at our various uh, ASEP events. Now, I'm, I'm obviously very proud of, of what Jillian's accomplished. And uh, so I, I, I accompany her on, on many of her trips uh, in different uh, organizational activities. You also met my wife, Barb, and it is Ken and Barbie. And I love being a plus one around these smart, bright, talented, articulated, whatever term you want to use. But I have to say, we both married up. Yeah, exactly. Well, enough talking about our spouses. Let's uh, get on with the case. Sure. So we've got a 55-year-old man comes into the emergency department for increased uh, knee pain and decrease in function. He's had an ACL reconstruction and used to run marathons. However, he's finding it more difficult to even put his socks on. His exam shows that he's got a varus deformity of the knee, decreased range of motion, crepitus, no locking or mechanical symptoms, and he's neurovascularly intact distally. X-rays show severe tricompartmental arthritis. And of course, these are totally hypothetical, it's me, cases that we present here. All right, so for some background, musculoskeletal complaints are one of the most common presentations to the emergency department. And often emergency physicians are assessing, treating, and answering questions about orthopedic surgical procedures. Now, ultimately, the decision whether or not to operate is a conversation between the patient and their surgeon. However, we should know what is the quality of the evidence 
for the most common elective orthopedic procedures? But before we answer that question, let's remind everyone that only a small number, about 2.8% of interventions published in SRMA and relevant to emergency medicine have unbiased and strong evidence for improved outcomes. Well, thanks for bringing that up, Matt. Yeah, we actually covered that on SGEM number 361. And we don't want to be throwing rocks and living in glass houses here. So I'm glad you brought it up that the emergency medicine literature doesn't have a great deal of robust level one evidence to support it. But this is not just an orthopedic problem. It's not just an emergency medicine problem. It's a broader problem in medicine. And there was a publication back in 2009 by Trochi et al. in JAMA. And they looked at the ACC AHA guidelines from 1984 all the way up to 2008 at that time of publication in 2009. Now, they searched and found 53 guidelines. And I, I don't know how people, you know, no one can possibly, you know, know all these recommendations. Over 7,000 recommendations. But you don't need to know all 7,000 because, you know, the results were only 11% of the recommendations were considered level A. And in fact, 50%, that's right, half were level C recommendations. Yeah, and, and those same guidelines or recommendations were then studied again by Fahnenroff and, and JAMA in 2019. And they looked from that period of publication from 2008 up to 2018, they looked at 26 guidelines, nearly 3,000 recommendations, and the level A recommendations actually decreased from 11% down to 9%. And 50% of the recommendations were level B with 41% at level C. So even in, in quote unquote, current times, we're not getting better at having level A evidence or, or good randomized trials to, to answer some of these questions. Well, Matt, let's turn our skeptical eye upon the evidence for elective orthopedic procedures. So what's the clinical question? So the clinical question is, what is the effectiveness of common elective orthopedic procedures compared with no treatment, placebo, or non-operative care? And the reference? This is from a, a BMJ article from 2021 published by Blom et al. Uh, titled Common Elective Orthopedic Procedures and Their Clinical Effectiveness, Umbrella Review of Level 1 Evidence. All right, let's run through the PICO. What was the population? This was a meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials. Yeah, and they excluded those network meta-analyses where you don't compare A to B. You compare A to B and B to C and then put together a comparison between A and C. So you don't directly compare the evidence. Also, they excluded narrative reviews, systematic reviews that didn't pool the data or do a meta-analysis and meeting abstracts. What was the intervention? The intervention was surgical treatment. And the comparison group? Either no treatment, placebo, or non-operative care. And what were they looking for for their outcome of interest? They were looking for quality and quantity of evidence behind the 10 most common elective orthopedic surgeries in comparisons with the strengths of those recommendations in relevant national clinical guidelines. And Matt, can you give the author's conclusions from the abstract of this BMJ article that came out last year? Yeah, so this is a quote. Although they, they may be effective overall or in certain subgroups, there is no strong high quality evidence base shows that many commonly performed elective orthopedic procedures are more effective than non-operative alternatives. Despite the lack of strong evidence, some of these procedures are still recommended by national guidelines in certain situations. Okay, let's go through the quality checklist for therapeutic systematic reviews, and there's seven questions. The first question is, Matt, 
do you think this clinical question is sensible to ask and answerable? I think it's sensible, yes, but you know, I'm, I'm a little bit unsure if it's completely, if, if we can answer some of these questions. Do you think the authors did an extensive, detailed, and exhaustive search for available studies? Yes, they definitely did. Now, do you think the primary studies were of high methodological quality? Yes, they included any of the level one studies that they could have that they could review. And the assessment of the studies, do you think it's reproducible? Yes. Do you think the outcomes were clinically relevant to patients? Yes, I think it, it helps guide whether or not you should have an operation or not. The sixth question, was there low statistical heterogeneity for the primary outcome? That I'm unsure. We couldn't find the, the I-squared statistic in the manuscript or the supplemental material. Yeah, they mentioned heterogeneity, but I went looking for the quantification and I couldn't find that I-squared test. All right, the seventh question, the treatment effect. Was it large enough and precise enough to be clinically significant? Uh, yes, for two of the procedures, and, and no, we're unsure for some of the rest. All right, well, let's go through the results. The 10 most common elective orthopedic procedures were identified using a literature search, an assessment of hospital episode statistics procedure frequency counts, and discussions with orthopedic experts like yourself. I'm sure people are wondering, hey, it's like David Letterman. What was the top 10 list for elective orthopedic procedures? Sure. So these are the top 10 most commonly performed. So arthroscopic ACL reconstruction, arthroscopic meniscal repair, arthroscopic partial meniscectomy, arthroscopic rotator cuff repair, arthroscopic subacromial decompression of the shoulder, carpal tunnel decompression, lumbar spine decompression, lumbar spine fusion, and then total hip replacement and total knee replacement. All right, those are the top 10. We'll put the list in the show notes, but I know people are waiting to hear. What was the key result? That only two out of those 10 common procedures being carpal tunnel decompression and total knee replacement showed superiority having been tested uh, over non-operative care. Yeah, and we need to be clear and provide some granularity and nuance to the data. They didn't identify any high-quality randomized control trials specifically comparing total hip replacements or meniscal repair with non-operative care. So it's not like they've proven it doesn't work. They just don't have level one evidence to demonstrate that it does work. Right. And, and the six other common orthopedic procedures showed no benefit when they looked at level one evidence compared with non-operative uh, care. All right. Let's talk a little nerdy. I started getting into that already. So got five things to go through. The first one is about the Haddad decision algorithm. And this is probably an unfamiliar process to most SGM listeners. It's a process that was proposed back in the late 1990s to help decision makers select from among discordant reviews. Now, since its publication, the Haddad decision instrument is now commonly used to interpret between systematic review meta-analyses with discordant results. Yeah, and you know, an absence of evidence, just because we don't have high quality randomized controlled trials doesn't mean that we can conclude that certain procedures don't work. For example, total hip arthroplasty is one of the quote unquote most successful surgeries we have in orthopedics when you look at patient reported outcomes. But there hasn't been a level one study that compares total hip arthroplasty with non-operative care. So that's, you know, when we look at this, just because there isn't a level one study doesn't mean that a procedure such as a total hip replacement isn't indicated or doesn't have successful outcomes. 
yes, and I'm sure many of us know patients that have undergone a total hip replacement, and it's been quite life-changing for them with their pain and lack of function, and to be able to get up and do the, the activities of daily living and not be living with chronic pain. We've seen that now, just because you don't have level one evidence, again, you emphasize that the absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. And so sometimes that's one of the limitations of the medical literature. We just don't have the trial. The third nerdy point was about arthroscopic ACL repair. The overall evidence does not support the routine reconstruction of a patient's anterior cruciate ligament. Now, that doesn't mean a certain individual does not need an ACL repair. Right. There, there's a landmark uh, uh, trial, the, the knee anterior cruciate ligament non-operative versus operative trial, the Canon trial that was published uh, in 2010 in the New England Journal of Medicine. This was an RCT of 121 young active adults with an acute ACL injury. The primary outcome in that study was a change from baseline to two years in the average score on, on four subscales of the knee injury and osteoarthritis outcome score, or what we call the CUS score in knee-related quality of life. They found that rehab plus early ACL reconstruction was not superior to rehabilitation plus optional delayed reconstruction in their study. And you're probably aware of this, Matt, but a secondary analysis was just published and looked at the incidence of spontaneous healing of the ruptured ACL in the canine trial. That was in BMJ Sports and Exercise Medicine in 2022. And they found that there was a high rate of ACL healing in patients managed without surgery and only rehab. They found 56% at two years and 58% at five years. In addition, these individuals reported better patient-reported outcomes compared to the non-healed people, and also to the patients that actually had a surgical reconstruction. Yeah. So, so like most things in medicine, the answer is it all depends. As a mid forties year old person that, that uh, jogs on a treadmill, if I tore my ACL, I wouldn't necessarily need a reconstruct reconstruction. That's different in my 16 year old soccer player that needs an ACL to perform cutting and twisting activities. So the decision to perform surgery depends on many factors, including the patient's values and preferences. What are their current activities and, and, and what do they want to, or if they want to continue some of these certain activities? Well, I had both my ACLs repaired well before the canine trial was published. One repair went really well and I'm really happy with it. The other one, not so much. They actually nicked the old common perineal nerve, leaving me with foot drop for a few months. And I still have permanent uh, decrease in sensation on the lateral half of my lower leg. Yeah, and this, this goes into some of the, the risks of surgery. And so when you talk about operative versus non-operative care, there are inherent risks whenever you perform a surgery that, that need to be factored in. I think you're skipping ahead to number five. Let's do number four, though. What about possible parachute? One of the other 10 common procedures lacking RCTs was arthroscopic meniscus repair. And you and I were talking and, and I joked that I don't need a randomized controlled trial to verify that it's not safe to jump out of an airplane without a parachute. And I don't need an RCT to inform my decision to repair a meniscus. And, and this comes from the fact that there's multiple studies that show, you know, back a generation ago, we just removed the meniscus like it was a, a, an appendix. And what we saw was that with, with a, a meniscal deficient knee, it reliably turns into severe osteoarthritis. So the meniscus serves an important purpose, right? And so uh, when we're talking, I said, I don't, we don't need an RCT to say that the meniscus is good and I need to try and preserve it if possible. 
Yeah. And the only thing I would uh, push back gently, of course, would be to caution you that most medical procedures are not parachutes. So I just want to remind listeners and that an RCT can be conducted in most cases. And in fact, there was even a parachute trial done and it was a randomized control trial, but you had to read the details. The plane was on the ground and it was not moving. And that's why they found no statistical difference in morbidity and mortality for people jumping out of the non-moving plane. And that was SGEM number 284. Well, you jumped ahead a little bit to number five, and that's about the potential harms. And we've discussed the lack of superiority for efficacy in six of the 10 most common orthopedic procedures. But as you reminded us, it's important to consider the potential harms. And with modern orthopedic surgery, it's generally very, very safe. But there is an increase in morbidity and mortality with any surgical intervention. You're right. There's always a risk with surgical intervention. There's higher risk with things like a joint arthroplasty or spine surgery. So it's important to exhaust conservative measures. You highlighted how even with something that we consider simple as an ACL reconstruction can have potential uh, harmful outcomes. And so when there, when there is um, a risk of surgery, I think it's really important for patients to have that conversation with their surgeon about exhausting conservative measures. However, when there's nerve impingement causing weakness, such as with the carpal tunnel or, or a herniated disc, delaying that surgical decompression can also lead to permanent weakness. And this is different than the neurogenic pain. And so that's why it's important to have that conversation with the surgeon. Well, that's enough nerdy talk with you, Matt. Now it's time to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusion. So we generally agree with the author's conclusions that there is a, there is a lack of high quality evidence. All right. Can you give an SGEM bottom line? There's a lack of high quality evidence to support all but two out of the 10 most common elective orthopedic procedures. And those were total knee replacement and carpal tunnel decompression. And can you resolve that case of that anonymous individual, that 55 year old who used to run marathons and now his knee doesn't work? Well, that patient has progressively worse knee and should be referred to an orthopedic surgeon to discuss what his treatment options are. So how are you gonna take this systematic review, this umbrella review, looking at the 10 most common orthopedic procedures and apply it clinically? Well, this information can help patients and their physicians in their decision-making process. In the, in the supplemental material for the article, they compared the results to various guidelines, including our own American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons guidelines, and that's in Appendix 11. The AOS, our, we, we have a, a team in, in, that puts together clinical practice guidelines or CPGs that use very similar methodology with work groups analyzing the best available evidence and grading it. They look not only at surgical interventions, but also non-surgical options, such as orthobiologics, uh, corticosteroid injections, physiotherapy for knee arthritis, et cetera. And as, as highlighted in this review, there's frequently a lack of high-level studies to support any intervention, operative or non-operative, and that's reflected in how we grade those CPGs. I've got to say, you know, I, I take a look at a lot of guidelines and I was impressed with the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons guidelines in general. They're, they're high quality and well done with reasonable recommendations based on the limited evidence. All right. So Matt, I've got an orthopedic expert with me. So what are you going to tell that hypothetical patient? So I, re I recommend uh, exhausting all conservative measures before considering joint replacement. 
Although the technology is getting better and, and implants theoretically last longer, you inherently want to delay as long as possible because we know that primary joint replacement, so the first time that you have it done, has better outcomes than revision surgery. So if you have it replaced, you only want to have it replaced once. There's little downside in trying conservative management such as therapy or injections to try and make your native knee or hip last as long as possible. Uh, what I tell folks, and including my father when he was going through this, is that you want to try and delay as long as possible because you're inherently less active the older you are, and that's less wear and tear on the on the joint replacement. So you'd like to try and, and have it last the, the remainder of your life and just have it done once. Thanks for the consult. It's time for the Keener contest. Last week's winner was Keita Len from Vancouver, and they knew that the hippocampus is typically affected on diffuse weighted MRI in transient global amnesia. Matt, what question do you have for us this week? Sure. Many bones are named for familiar items that they resemble, such as the scaphoid, et cetera. Our, the bones in our fingers, the, the phalanges were thought to resemble uh, what uh, character or why were they named after phalanges? So if you know why the finger bones were named phalanges, then send an email to the sgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. Well, thanks, Matt, for coming on the sgem and sharing with us your expertise. Thanks, Ken. Thanks for having me. This has been a lot of fun, and hopefully some of the listeners uh, gleaned one or two uh, interesting facts from it. Well, I hope to get together with you and Jillian and Barb, with you and I on the Plus One program in the near future. <laughs> so uh, before we go, though, we need you to give the SGM tagline. Now, I know you're in Texas, but you're not, you're not originally from Texas, are you? No, I'm from Colorado originally. Okay, so is there like a Colorado accent that you could like drum up and just overdo for, you know, like just just give it your most over-the-top Coloradian? Is that is it Coloradian? I don't know, there, accent? There isn't, but I'll put on a Patagonia vest that seemed to be uh, popular in Colorado. Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time. Stop. Have a time.